0: Hello, podcast listeners. It's Connor from Intelligence Squared. Before we go to this week's episode, I want to remind you quickly about the special offer we have on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. Yes, now we are hosting our debates live and online, and you can join us with a special discount code, PODCAST, P O D C A S T. If you'd like to subscribe, use that promo code at the checkout and join us over the next few weeks as we deal with events such as Salman Rushdie. On our new podcast Touchstones with Razia Iqbal, we have the author Rutger Bregman who will be speaking to Helen Lewis about human kindness in a frightened world. We have the author Tayari Jones who will be joining Samira Ahmed on the award-winning podcast How I Found My Voice, as well as a number of debates we're going to be launching in the next few weeks. So do keep an eye on that and use the code PODCAST p o d c a s t at the checkout and join us and ask your questions live to the speaker's as the debate happens, and on this week's podcast, we're very happy to say we have Stuart Ritchie, who many of you might remember was in our debate. Does parenting matter? And it was also in another debate on Intelligence Squared Plus recently on whether there's such thing as a gendered brain, a female brain, or a male brain. But today, Stuart joined us to speak about his new book, Science Fictions, exposing fraud, negligence, bias, and hype in science. And he spoke to Tom Whipple, science editor of the Times, for a really fascinating conversation. So we hope you enjoy.
1: Hello, I'm Tom Whipple, author and science editor at The Times. I'm here with Stuart Ritchie, a psychologist, a professor, and a frequent debater on Intelligence Squared. He is the author of the new book, Science Fictions Exposing Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype in Science. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Tom. So, I think it'd be great to start this discussion where your book starts, because you yourself have some experience of exposing fraud, bias and hype in science and quite an instructive anecdote about how that happened. You came across a paper which, if it was true, I think it's fair to say, would have completely changed our understanding of physics, of humanity, of what it is to be a human. It would be the most important paper in the world, pretty much ever, people like me, journalists, we covered it as that's a bit funny, isn't it quirky? But you had a different response when it came out. Tell us well, about Well, yeah,
2: this this is when I was a PhD student. Um, I, I always take an interest in the kind of latest controversies in, in, in psychology. And, and the, this is in 2011. The, the most controversial paper appeared, which was one that showed that psychic powers exist. And it was published in a, a very mainstream very well respected journal the sort of journal where if you get a paper in it that kind of um uh, makes your career in some in some ways people talk about getting you know if you've got two or three journal um articles in this journal then you know you'll definitely get a job at a good university so like a really a really mainstream prestigious place and it was by uh, Daryl Bem who's a uh, a social psychologist at uh, Cornell University in the US and he uh, had this amazing study where he had um, nine experiments, which kind of reversed the usual time sequence of, of psychology studies. So normally in a psychology study, you would, you would show people... maybe So in a memory study, you would give them a list of words to remember. Then you would remind them of half of the words. And then it turns out, obviously, that they would remember the words that you reminded them of. That makes perfect sense. But what he did in this study was he made the reminder happen after the test. So people saw a list of words... Then they were given a test to try and remember those words. Then they were reminded of them afterwards. And then that was the end of the experiment. And the idea was, and what he claimed to find in this paper, was that the words that they were about to see in future were remembered better on the test. So um, this is like um, you study for an exam and then you sit the exam. And then you study again after it and that somehow loops backwards in time to help you on the uh, exam that you just did, which is obviously like a mind blowing thing and kind of takes a few seconds to even when you're reading the paper, you think, is that really what? And you kind of you have to sort of like um, uh, get yourself into a completely different frame of mind. So but that was published in a mainstream journal. So what we thought we would do, we would try and replicate it. We would try and run the same experiment again, uh, using exactly the same software, exactly the same memory test, exactly the same everything. On our undergraduates, back when I worked at the University of Edinburgh, um, so we, we, published, we, we, we did that replication. And no, no surprise there that it, we didn't find uh, a positive result. We found that people um, did not remember the words that they were about to see. They weren't psychic. And we tried to publish that paper in the same journal that it had been published in—the the original had been published in, the one, the the, the Journal of, of Personality and Social Psychology. It's called. And uh, what they said to us instantly was, "We do not accept replication studies. We do not consider publication uh, publication of replication studies under any circumstances." Um, and that really shocked me because. They had published the original. They had published the original really exciting finding that was kind of mind-blowing and got on the news and that, you know, the author got on the Colbert Report in the US. It was like like a big deal. But they wouldn't even consider publishing something that said, "Eh, actually, maybe people aren't psychic. And so um, that kind of stands in, I think, for quite a lot of science where the focus is on exciting, new, groundbreaking findings and not on findings that are probably more likely to be true, but are maybe a bit more boring.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this, so the interesting thing about your book is I think people who've been following this will know about this thing that's called maybe in capital letters, the replication crisis. And a lot of psychology has... Fallen down. Um, a lot of things that we we sort of still a common knowledge. The sort of things that you would repeat at dinner parties. You know, the Stanford Prison Experiments, mm-hmm. the power posing where suddenly the whole Conservative Party cabinet were standing like sort of slightly <laughs> inconstant cowboys on the party conference stage, and all of these things that you know. I think a lot of people heard about these falling. And they thought, yeah, that figures. That sort of slightly too easy. TED Talk kind of thing. But what you're saying is that far from being a problem with psychology, this is there, there are generalised problems here that, that spread into other disciplines.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think psychology has been the field where we've looked at this most kind of systematically. Like, there's been these large attempts, you know, because of problems like the, the, the that psychic experiment and various other things that happened around about 2011, 12. Since then, psychology has been much more aware of this problem, and so we've systematically started to look at it. So we've got a good idea of the problems in psychology, although there's still debate over you know, exactly what is reliable and what isn't, as you would expect. Scientists are constantly debating and arguing, that makes sense. But um, we have indications that there are the same kinds of problems in other areas of science as well. So um, uh, if you 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 start off in fields that are kind of closely allied to psychology, like economics and so on, um, they've done some replication surveys and found similar problems. Um, Then you, you, you kind of move out further into more kind of you know what you might call hard sciences, although again that's not a term that a lot of people like these days. But the harder sciences like physics and chemistry and so on, I think probably they have less problems in in those in those disciplines. They have you know um, slightly more control over their experiments, less kind of fickle human beings in their in their in their you know as as their as their test subjects. They can they can really control things in a in a in a more in a stronger way, but. There are glimmers of the same kinds of issues, fraudulent scientists publishing papers uh, and getting away with it for years, unreplicable experiments being retracted, surveys of scientists that say that they've tried to find the same result as a previous paper found and they've been unable to do that. Um, and and even ones, you know, you see this quite a lot, for instance, in, uh, in computer science, you know, algorithms and so on. People being unable to even make the same experiment work again, uh, even if you use exactly the same code and exactly the same data. So, you know, all these algorithms that are published in the journals, people take the code and go, "Oh, okay, I'll run that and maybe try and extend it in some way. And then they can't even get it to work in the first place. So we've got all these problems. And and the scariest of all, of course, is when it happens in, in medicine and when you have these treatments that are used and that are written up in medical guidelines and recommended to doctors. And then another study comes along and completely contradicts what was the case before, probably because the quality of the original studies on which the original recommendation was based was really poor.
1: So for listeners who aren't familiar about how science works how should talk me through the ideal if you were if you were describing this sort of pure mechanism that humans have derived for finding knowledge and furthering our our race how should it work what what from from the experiment to the publication to what comes next what should be happening and what are the checks
2: and balances that should be there? Well, normally you would expect. I think if you ask people, you know, what they expect scientists to do, the idea would be that they would come up with a strong experiment before they've even, you know, before they looked at the data. They come up with a, would come up with an experiment. They come up with an idea of how to analyze that experiment, and they write it all down and plan it all out, and then they go and collect some data. Then, once the data are in, they run their statistical analysis. Maybe even they get someone else to run the statistical analysis who's not you know, part of the same, even who's not, who doesn't have the same biases and so on. And then the, they would submit it to the the ultimate system of checks and balances, which is, of course, the peer review system, where you send your article off to a journal. You pick a journal that's particularly close to your field. You know, you would, uh, it, it, for the experiment we talked about before, it's the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. It's very clear what that publishes. It's a kind of specific to psychology journal. Um there are also the general journals like Nature and Science and and things which publish you know results from across the sciences. And then the editor of that journal, if they're interested in the paper, will send out to um your colleagues, your peers for peer review, uh, and uh they will give a completely Disinterested look at the paper and analyze its statistics, and stand back and say, "Does this make sense? Does this work?" They'll dig into the details and and and, and look at the um, uh, whether your numbers make sense and so on. And then you will get your publication and you'll get your line on your CV and you'll be very pleased and uh, and so on. And you'll have made a contribution to the scientific the scientific literature. The problem is that at every single stage of that process, that's the ideal. At every single stage, all sorts of biases and failures and and, and issues come in, and that's really. That's really what the book is about.
1: Okay, so let's um, let's start. Where, where does where does the first bit of the rock set in?
2: Well, I think if you if uh, if you asked again, if you asked just someone who, you know who wasn't an expert in science, if you just asked them, you know, do, do you think scientists plan out their analysis beforehand, or do you think they collect the data and then kind of just do the analysis kind of ad hoc as they go along and kind of let themselves do any old thing as they as they as they go through? Of course, they would say that it was the former, but actually. The vast majority of cases, scientists are just kind of running the analysis ad hoc as they, as they go along. There's no plan normally. There's a, sometimes a very vague idea of what they're going to do once they get the data. But the problem is that when you run your analysis ad hoc, you allow yourself to be, um, to be dragged along in different directions and you can introduce lots and lots of biases into your experiment. Now, one of the, one of the major biases, of course, is that people want to find Positive results. They want to find statistically significant results, uh, and um, uh, if you look across the literature, you find that in in subjects like psychology, about ninety something percent of of experiments have positive results, which you wouldn't necessarily expect if scientists were just trying out new ideas, and some of them failed, and some of them were true, and you know they just you know they they were they were. Um, they were kind of really properly experimenting with the world. but actually what you find is that ninety percent of them or more are, uh, are are positive, which implies that we're not seeing the ones that didn't work. We're not seeing the blind alleys, we're not seeing the the, the failed experiments. And so these kind of these two things that I've mentioned, the statistical biases and the bias towards finding positive results work together in a really insidious way, which is that they uh, which is that scientists sometimes unconsciously, ...run their analysis in such a way that they find positive results. And the reason that they do that, of course, is is that the journals want positive results. They want the exciting, flashy results, like I've I've mentioned with that psychic study. Um, They themselves want to find positive results because it's cool to find positive results. You want to be able to show that you've advanced the literature, that you've advanced the treatment of a disease... ...or discovered some new, exciting knowledge about the world... And what you don't want to find is that your treatment idea didn't work. Your trial was a failure. Your, you know, your your new mechanism for how some, you know, some psychological trait works is actually not true. You know, so 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 you, you wanna you wanna find positive results. So that's the first place that the, the 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 bias comes in is that scientists make the decision as to whether to publish stuff on the basis of what the results were.
1: So the just to explain that to readers with an example in your book. I think I think this, uh, this, this is something that's called P-hacking, and I think the canonical example of that is probably someone that most people will have heard of. They'll have heard about how if you keep on filling a soup bowl from the bottom you'll eat indefinitely, or if you take a bigger plate to a buffet you'll fill it up faster. How are the, the, These are glorious results. I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm waiting for the bit where you get to how we screw up the process. But one of the ways is we absolutely love stories like this, and and ruin the story for
2: me. Well, yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah, a lot of those findings have, have come into question. So um, this is this this is is the the um, this is Brian Wansink, who was a professor, again, at Cornell. And I don't have an animus against Cornell University. It's just that it happens to be that, that that's the, where, where these results were from. Brian Wansink was the head of the Cornell Food and Brand Lab. And it was his idea that you had this bottomless soup bowl, as you say. And it was also his idea that bigger plates, if you take a bigger plate, you'll put more food on it. And these were, fine, like as you say, everyone knows this. And they were published in you know, psychology, food psychology journals. He wrote a really unfortunate blog post in, I think, 2006, towards the end of 2006, he wrote, sorry, uh, 2016, I should say, wrote this really unfortunate blog post where he said, I really like it when my students just get, they gather a whole bunch of data with a whole bunch of stuff, and then they just keep analysing it until they find something, and then we publish that. Um, And, you know, as I was just talking about, I don't think that's how most people would understand that scientists do stuff. They think that scientists would come up with an idea and then test whether it's true and then publish whether or not it was true, but actually, what he was admitting to doing inadvertently—I don't think he realized that he was saying this—but what he was admitting to doing was just collecting a bunch of data, dredging through it until he finds anything, and and then publishing it. And the reason you can do that is that uh, the more you run the statistical test that most scientists use to check whether a result is is uh, is is true or not, or is uh, is is just due to statistical chance or not, which is a a, a statistical significance test um and you get a, you get that uh, you get a p value from from that which is where you, the, the term you used uh, p hacking comes in the more times you run that test the more likely you are to be fooled essentially to be shown to to, to find a test result that looks like it's a positive result but actually it, it, it's just due to chance, and so this this problem becomes really acute when you're just dredging through and just running more and more and more more tests. Check whether check whether men pay more in tips when there's a woman uh, with them at the, at the table, or whether it's a man. Check whether it, they they pay more in tips when it's a pizza versus it's a it's pasta. Check whether you know you can do all these. You know, if you collect enough data, you can just keep running tests until you find a result and then, and then publish it. And that is what he was admitting to doing. So unfortunately, at that point, people started looking into his research and finding all sorts of really sloppy errors, really sloppy mistakes and um I mean, he was he was accused of by his university who eventually did an investigation of misconduct not necessarily fraud in that he wasn't making the data up but he was analyzing them in such a way that that it was essentially meaningless the results um and so he's he's actually he's retired from his position now he's 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 gone because you know he just wasn't really doing science he was doing kind of dredging through numbers and statistical noise and and if you, you know there's enough statistical noise around that you can find basically whatever you want if you have a big enough data set
1: Okay, and then so so I I've I haven't p hacked. I've I've got my paper through with uh, legitimate statistical analyses. Um, what's the next place this goes wrong?
2: The problem that, that can then come in is that so you uh, you have to also have made sure that you haven't made any mistakes in your analysis. So um, you know p hacking can be completely unconscious, but another unconscious problem is that a lot of people just, just sloppily make mistakes and, and you know copy and paste errors and things like that. But assuming that you've not done any of that. The next problem comes when you're actually communicating it to the world. So um, when writing the papers, uh, scientists spend an awful lot of time hyping up their results. So um, writing papers as if uh, the results were the most important thing ever to be discovered on this on this topic. The classic line about, you know, this has implications for, and then, you know, it might be the treatment of mental health disorders, or this has serious implications for how we understand X, Y, Z thing about the world, whatever it happens to be. Um, scientists love saying things like that and again it 's it's because of pressure from the journals. the journals want to publish papers that uh, that discover exciting new things about the world. so scientists write up the papers in ways that kind of decouple themselves from the data the actual you know the text, which is what most people read, especially if you don 't understand the statistics and most people even who are scientists don 't understand the statistical methods that are used in other fields so you know we 're looking at the, the you know the discussion section in the paper that tells you the the implications they write it in such a way that may, that that is goes way beyond what the data have actually shown and then they often then move towards actually taking the it beyond the scientific journals and into the real world, which is where press releases come in. I think a lot of people think that press releases are just written by you know, PR people at universities and so on. But actually, they're, they're in many cases written by the scientists themselves. And that's a place where there's no peer review. So you can say whatever you want, essentially. And people make up all sorts of stuff about the research in, in press releases. They They jump from correlational research to causal conclusions. They jump from research that's in mice or in rats to this is definitely true in in, in humans. They jump from a study of just a few people to this is definitely how everyone should you know, eat or uh, exercise or treat their kids or whatever it happens to be. So the scientists themselves, I think a lot of people blame journalists and blame PR people and so on. But it's the scientists themselves that are often the source of of this hype when 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 results go out into the real world.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a, um, I, 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 I endorse your blaming of people who aren't me. Uh, <laughs> uh, th- there's a quite a nice sort of example slash parable in your book where you talk about because at the moment we've chatted about fun things like soup bowls and and paranormal but this is obviously there's a very serious side as you've made clear and you talk about studies into antidepressants and there was a kind of study of studies where the scientists looked at a hundred I guess pre-registered studies and, and looked what actually happened and can you I don't know if you can remember. but Can you talk through what happened to these hundred papers that became something very different?
2: Yeah, it's an incredible study actually, and it's got this really, it's got this really vivid figure which I reproduce in the book where you you can see at the start there were um, actually of the studies that were registered because clinical trials have to be registered before you uh, before you uh, run the study. That's that's the only kind of study where like legally you have to register them. So we know all the clinical. St- trials that are taking place, unless they're done illegally, which I think is not very, is not very common. But we know that they're all taking, we know which ones are taking place. And then it turned out that, you know, about 50-50, uh, in half the cases, the drug worked, and in half the cases, it didn't. So you've got about 50-50. But then you see the process of the negative results basically disappearing. So we know that they exist. We know that they happened, that, the, that a trial was run that had those negative results. But as you go through the process of uh, of which ones get chosen to be published in journals. And it's basically all the positive ones get published and all the negative ones uh, just kind of dissipate and you just have a few negative ones there. Then you go through the process of how they're actually written up in the papers themselves, uh, and you find null results um, uh, often become subject to spin. So uh, they're they're written verbally as if they were you know kind of almost there. And this this probably works kind of. Oh sure, the statistics didn't show that it works, but but probably it works. You know, you can write it up in a in a kind of sp- uh, spun way like that. And then actually by the the end, they show that the studies that got positive results were cited more by other scientists than the ones that got negative results as well. So by the time you've been through this process, you change the real scientific literature... From which was about 50 50 into something where i don't know i can't remember the exact numbers but it's like 90 percent positive or something or maybe even worse yeah
1: yeah. you you dropped 50 odd papers that were negative to basically five that were negative yeah
2: yeah yeah it's incredible really when you when you see it like that and it's not just antidepressants you know this this happens they showed in that same paper that it happens for studies on for trials of of psychotherapy as well for depression but i'm pretty sure given all the other evidence that there is about publication bias and all these issues that this happens for lots of other topics as well
0: yeah yeah That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I mean, I'm listening to this,
1: and regularly when you look at surveys, scientists are always the most trusted profession journalists are very unfairly always the least trusted profession other than estate agents are we right well first of all are we right to trust you all and secondly is this the result of scientists overly selecting for malevolent and deceitful individuals or is there something else going on about the way that science works and that quite decent people end up being in this this system where
2: this is how it works, I think we we're right to trust the idea of science. We're right to trust the process of science, the the methods of science. I mean, pe- there's no one such thing as the scientific method, and philosophers have argued for a long, long time about that. But you know, the, we're, we're, the basic principles of science are bulletproof, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's the it's the way that those are instantiated in the world, and the way that those are instantiated in academia that becomes that becomes problematic. So we're totally, we're totally, the, the idea of, of doing peer review is a great one where you're, you're asking for outside scrutiny of, of results. But the way it's instantiated is, well, you're, you're, you, you know, you give a, a, a paper to other scientists who are themselves busy scientists with other stuff on their minds. You give them a time limit to do it. You don't give them any additional reward or pay to do it. You just get them to do it out of the goodness of their heart. And they're probably going to do, you know, a, a, a not great job on it, or, or in many cases, they're not going to do a great job on it. Of course, lots of peer reviewers are really heroic and that they, they, they still, despite all that stuff, still do a great job. You know, in many cases, you can see why they would, they would be rushed and they would not notice errors in papers, dodgy statistical analyses, even sometimes fraud, you know, slips right through the net. So you can see how that's a system where, in theory, it's great, but in practice, it's, it's, it, really, it really doesn't work, and it's full of holes. And can I and that- interrupt briefly here, just because you've, um, we've been talking about all this serious
1: stuff, and I want to give a sense that your book's really good fun as well. And the section on peer review was, you talk about how I, I hadn't realised that peer review was quite a new thing, and that when Albert Einstein got peer-reviewed he he announced he was re- withdrawing his paper from consideration because they yeah. dared to send it to another physicist for comment and, and then you look at a you you show some real peer review comments and you can sort of sympathize with, with <laughs> Einstein examples you quote the manuscript makes three claims the first we've known for years the second for decades the third for centuries or my, I'm afraid this manuscript may contribute not so much towards the field's advancement as much towards its
2: eventual de- demise. Um, these are these are glorious, great quotes, genuine quotes from peer reviews. You can, you can imagine getting that. It's so demoralizing when you get that sort of comment in your in your in your review. But you know, I don't know if we'd want it to be any other way because we want science to be rigorously, you know, analysed and we want people to be to be honest in peer reviews. And that's one of the. It's both the upside and the downside of peer reviews is that you can be honest if you're a you know, sometimes, you know, junior, junior academics, even sometimes PhD students are asked to review papers and they can say, because they're anonymous, they can say, actually, this paper by this really big professor, this really important Professor at prestigious university is completely bad for all these reasons, and is, is, is terrible for all these reasons. But of course, the downside of peer review is exactly the same thing, which is that people can trash papers that they disagree with because the theory doesn't fit with their preconceptions or whatever. So you get these all these these hilarious comments, and I've had plenty of them myself over the years, and um I, I've given some over the years. I've tried, you know, one tries to control oneself, but um, sometimes you see something that's just so daft that you can't control yourself. So so yeah, so that's one of the one of the problems is with with peer review, but. Uh, to, to go back to your previous question the, the the overall problems that I identify in the book are are with the the, the 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 general setup of academia, which is that the incentives are all wrong. The incentives are towards publishing more papers. you know I mentioned you, you get that line on your cV that's what people want that's what people are really looking for in sciences is, is getting a longer cV, having a paper published, especially if it's published in a in a really glamorous. Journal, like a really a really great outlook, great, great publication, like Nature or Science or places like that, and um, and they're not necessarily incentivized towards getting true results, getting results that are real, getting results that are going to stand the test of time and that are robust to uh, other other people's, you know, trying to replicate or extend them. So the whole system of universities, that's how universities reward researchers. They, they, they promote and give tenure to researchers who have lots of papers on their CV. The funders are more likely to, to give you, you know, funding if, if it looks like your ideas are flashy and exciting and so on. And they're less likely to be interested in you know slow replication studies building up a foundation and so on so the same kind of incentives that apply to uh, journalists who are looking for exciting stories as you as you say apply exactly the same to to universities funders journals the whole the whole system that surrounds science and that really knocks it off track of you know which is it's meant to be finding things that are true it knocks it off towards you know just publishing stuff and publishing it in in glamorous places
1: so how do we how do we fix this
2: there's a lot of different things one of the things we we've previously mentioned is that clinical trials for instance are uh you have to register clinical trials before you before you start so one thing would be for scientists to uh, start writing down their analyses before they before they before they do them writing writing down an, a, a proper detailed analysis plan like i think most people would assume scientists would be doing but they don't and putting it somewhere public and saying this is what we're going to do and if we do anything different then you know you can you can see that we've changed the plan there we can see that we've we've kind of we've uh, we've been unable to resist running another analysis like in the like in the pizza restaurant one where the the person's just doing the same uh, doing doing analyzing the same data set over and over and over again so pre-registering analyses like that is something that i think most sciences can learn from clinical trials we can learn that, that that's a really good that's a really good idea journals can change the way they reward or or their publication strategies. There are now publication strategies where scientists can send in an introduction, you know, a kind of introductory section and and their planned method and get it reviewed before any data are are collected. And the journal agrees to publish the paper, whether or not the results are positive or not. So that takes away all the problems of publication bias, because you've agreed beforehand that you're going to publish this paper, no matter how it turns out. And then you go off and do the actual data collection and you you do it. So journals can change the way they do that. Scientists can change how open and transparent they are. They can start sharing their data with each other. At the moment, if you email scientists and ask for their data set, they're normally extremely reluctant to give you that. In some cases, because they worry that they've made made a mistake. In some cases, because it's just a mess that they haven't annotated it properly and that nobody would be able to understand uh, except themselves, which I think is not really an adequate excuse for not sharing your data, but it's a very common thing. So that's another, that's another thing. Um, universities can change the way they hire people. They can hire scientists who uh, are open and who uh, contribute data and contribute tools for people to use, rather than just hiring people who have long CVs. So there are lots of different changes that can be made at different levels, you know, bottom up and top down changes that can be made. And some of them are being made. I am somewhat optimistic. But um, I have to say that certainly in recent times with this, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm seeing a lot of the problems kind of come come up again and again and again despite all these changes that people have tried to make
1: so with i mean with covid we've had the sort of greatest explosion of scientific research i think in in human history it's been a a massive global collaborative effort What, what are your worries about the way in which this is being done
2: um, I think the main worry is that it's being done really quickly. And one of the biggest problems with that publish or perish culture that I was just describing is that is that people do research too fast. They peer review research too fast, they, they publish research too fast, and they, it allows all sorts of mistakes and and, and corner-cutting to, to, to come in. We just recently saw the case where two papers were retracted from two of the top medical journals in the world, The Lancet and The New England Journal of Medicine, because the the Harvard researchers who published them this was on the the drug uh, hydroxychloroquine the Harvard researchers who published them had not looked at the data that they had been provided by a company who had apparently come up with these with these data on patients who'd been given hydroxychloroquine and had just rushed to publish the papers and and and, and get them out there in these in these top journals absolutely mind boggling it turned out that the data had loads of had loads of problems and they've been questioned in in, in various ways and it looks like they're going to have to be um, uh the, well I mean, they've been retracted but it, you know investigations are continuing into exactly what has gone on with those with those data but um imagine that imagine publishing data in the top journals in the world without having really checked it yourself and when you check it the person that gave you it says oh sorry i can't i can't provide you with that data that's astonishing and that's, a, that's an example of how the haste that the pandemic has given us has really pushed you know science off a cliff in, in in many ways we've also seen really dodgy research on masks uh, we've seen dodgy research on other other drugs that are related to the virus we've seen dodgy research on the genetics of the virus uh, on on the psychology of the of the of the virus and a lot of it comes from just people thinking oh i can be helpful here my field is you know related in some way to the to the pandemic so i'll i'll publish another paper i mean a lot of the research is not necessarily damaging in any way it's just it's just useless or weird like like did we really need the paper that was about how covid relates to the finger length the 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 relation between your second and fourth finger the ratio of of length like there's a paper published in the literature on that do, does that do we really need that this sounds like a great uh, story i can <laughs> Do you know what? I can't even remember. I can't even recall the result of it because I was just like, oh, when I, when I saw it, you know, it's a, it's a common method that's used in in, in studies te- about testosterone and so on, and there's a big kind of, kind of debate about it. But like, is that really something that we need? And um, you know, there's lots of psychology studies that have come out, hundreds of studies, which are things like we've developed a new questionnaire to ask people how scared they are of COVID, and here we tested it in another sample, another sample, another sample. I mean, fair enough. But there's, but this this huge upsurge of research, as you say. Uh, a lot of it is is waste. A lot of it is done too quickly, and and a lot of it is just plain wrong. Unfortunately, so it's kind of it's not really shown science in a very good light.
1: And to what extent? I mean, you make you make quite a powerful case, and you know, in some of the fields, you'll find we're finding when when we do these analyses, you know, it, it's picking up research that's bad, fraudulent, doesn't replicate at very very significant percentages. I mean, percentages sort of you know fifty percent plus in some cases. Why are humans making progress at all if this is the case? It feels like there's a bit missing from this picture. That despite these imperfections, we are bumbling forwards and and doing our thing.
2: Yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't push the the, the argument too far and say that you know all all everything is is untrustworthy and so on. It's just it's just that we would be making such better progress if we could get over these problems that we have in literature. We would be making such quicker progress on diseases like COVID, but also all the other diseases that we study. We'd be making much better progress about understanding the world and understanding space and understanding the human mind and all the other stuff that we're interested in. If we didn't have all these things that are slowing the progress of science down, all these academic issues that we could we could solve, you know, by, by changing the incentive structure, by changing the, the, the rules. Um, although, I mean, Issues like fraud, people making results up and so on will always be with us because humans are humans and they occasionally do these kind of things. But yeah, um, we clearly are still making progress and I wouldn't want the book to be you know, used, uh, and I write, this, I write this in the book, as an argument against science in general. Uh, I don't want it to be used for people who are, you know, anti vaccine or, or against the idea that there's man made climate change or whatever, whatever weird unscientific idea people want to have. The idea is that we should raise our standards across the board and that we should raise our standards for all science, including the, you know, the stuff that's published in the very top journals. And so a lot of these ideas like, you know, climate climate denial and and anti-vaccination and um creationism or whatever it happens to be wouldn't stand up to this new raised race standard anyway. So it's not like people who are critics of science from a kind of unscientific perspective will get much out of this. I I I hope.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the causes for hope that I found on reading it was the ingenuity of some of these tests that are able to look at, at papers on mass and and there are loads of them. They're quite complicated to go into some of them. But look at papers on mass and find out just even from what's published in the paper automatically, oh, there's a problem here. And one of them that I felt was it, it was very clever and, and just about understandable and also had a brilliant acronym uh, was the Grim test. Are you, are you able to describe this So, so I'm sort of automatically looking at papers and just trying to find the ones that are a bit iffy?
2: I can do my best. Yeah. So this is the granularity related inconsistency of means test. So grim for sure. It's, it's a great, it's a great name. And this is by uh, Nick Brown and James Heathers, who are um, kind of data sleuths who look into dodgy, dodgy papers. Um, well, they look into all papers and they discover a few dodgy ones occasionally. But what this does is it discovers. Uh, so often in, particularly in areas like psychology, you've given people a scale, maybe from you know, 0 to 5 of, like, I don't know, how happy they are with their job, how happy they are with their family life, whatever it happens to be. And they'll rate that. But it turns out that there are only certain ways, say that you have a sample of 20 people that you've given that that test to, there are only certain numbers that can come out of that if you average, if if you take the average score. So, like, maybe it's possible that you could get a score of 349 but it wouldn't be possible to get a, a score of 3.47 or a score of 3.4. I'm, I'm not, I, I would need to do the maths. Uh, the simplest sample. way to
1: understand it, I think, is just with two people. With two people, you can either get a whole or a half.
2: Right, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So if you, if you have two people and you average the score, you can either get um, point, point 0.5 or you can get point 0.0 at the end of the number. Uh, there's no other if you get if you get a, a, a 0.37 after after the after the, the number you've done something wrong there's something wrong with this with the the, the the analysis that you've done or the calculation that you've done so um what they do is they look through the averages that are published in in uh in in papers in the tables and papers, so they don't even need access to the raw data. They just need the averages published in the in, in, in the paper, um, and they say, "Well, wait a minute, that number is impossible. It, 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 either either you've described the wrong sample size, so that's a mistake, or you've described the wrong average, so that's a mistake, or you've just described your questionnaire completely incorrectly, so that's a mistake. So something must be wrong." And in some of these cases, it's led on to discoveries of actual fraud. Like the people, the reason that the numbers are not possible is because they're made up. And the, and the fraudster didn't make them up in such a way that made them look realistic, which is, you know, something which a lot of fraudsters forget is that is that you need to actually make your data look as if they came about naturally and not that they were, you know, made, made by a human being. And in some cases, it's just a mistake. It's an error. It's just, uh, you know, someone's typed the wrong data into the spreadsheet or they've run the wrong calculation or they've made a copy and paste error when they were like taking their data from their statistical program into their word document which they were writing their scientific paper in which seems like such a kind of low-grade mistake but it happens all the time in science and uh, so yeah that's where the grim test can really be can really be useful and there are various other tests that are related to that and um, some of which also have good acronyms which uh, uh, um, James Heathers and, and Nick Brown have, have, have come up with that can that can do similar things for other types of data you know this one works for questionnaires where you have 0 to 5 or whatever but there are other types of data obviously that we'd want to do something similar in and there and there are other algorithms that kind of check um the p values that we were discussing before you know have you written have you written down the right p value in your study if not again it might be you've made a mistake somewhere and 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 various other ways of of looking and just saying does this data look as if it came about through natural normal means or does it look as if it's been tampered with or if it's or if it's just mistaken yeah
1: yeah And do you think that um, your opinion is mainstream? Does it anger scientists? Uh, Do you think it's being taken notice of? Is everyone getting their house in order to the extent that psychology seems to be?
2: I mean, there was a huge debate in psychology when, you know, when the the replication crisis started coming about and people started doing replication attempts and so on. There were psychologists who came along and said, this is useless. You're not doing the right thing. You're not running my, you know, you're not running my experiment correctly. So no wonder you're going to not get a replication of it. You changed one tiny aspect of it. And so how do you expect to find the same result? And the response to that is, well, if the result doesn't survive one tiny aspect being changed in the experiment, then probably it wasn't that important a result in the first place across other fields I again there's cause for optimism because I think a lot of people are catching on to this a lot of journals are starting to change you know that idea where you submit your the first part of your paper before you before you collect the data that's being instituted at lots and lots of journals not just in psychology it's called the registered report and it's 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 being instituted at lots and lots and lots of journals now in, in lots of different fields open science data sharing is becoming a thing I think in many respects because the technology is is is, is better now I mean just a few years ago, you had to actually physically fit all your uh, information on pages of paper uh, in, that were in the journal. Now, of course, you can share data much more easily. There are repositories online that you can upload your data set to. That you can download other people's data, run the analysis again. You can put all your code up there. Get you know, run everything. So you know, the technology is is, is now better. So more fields can actually you know make the change. It's one thing that I discuss in the book is that is that making you know getting people on board with these changes is one thing but making it easier for them to do it is 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 really the, the you know is, is is the best way uh, yeah so you you do see these these changes and you see other fields you know so ecology and evolution is one that's really kind of come on board you see a lot of papers saying hmm all these psychologists might have a point that we're you know doing all these incorrect analyses maybe we should look at our own field I saw a paper in criminology that did the same thing that said oh, how much of this criminology research is actually is actually not useful at all and so you know you, you're starting to see you're starting to see these issues you know being being discussed in lots of different fields and actually some of, the, some of them uh, sometimes they had to just have different words to, to use it so the, um, in medicine instead of p-hacking they, they talk about outcome switching in, in clinical trials which is where your trial was actually planned to be about a pill that reduces headache but actually it turned out that it reduced I don't know anxiety and so you say we were always doing a study on anxiety all along. And that's basically what p-hacking is, but it's just called a different name. So, you know, there's, there's kind of convergent discussions across different fields of all these problems.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we've reached the end of the time of the podcast, but that's at least something to hope for for the future. And if people want to find out more, and genuinely it's, uh, it's entertaining and it's, it's not all stats and there's, there's a lot of fun stuff in it, Science Fictions is currently out
2: now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.